Hey everyone, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast. Uh, we have a pretty awesome uh, episode this week. Um, we have uh, a guest all the way from Australia, which is why we're doing this on Friday instead of uh, a Thursday. Uh, thank you for joining us, um, Colm. Why don't you introduce yourself? No, not a problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name's Colm, and I have a little YouTube page that I go through all my aquaponics stuff on, and I've been doing it for a while now, and Steve invited me here, so I thought I'd come along and say good day to everybody. So, good day. Good day to you, and good evening to everybody in the States. Yep. And uh, uh, we also have with us, um, those of you guys that are from the DGC, we have a uh, uh, fish ganja guy, which uh, for the purposes of this episode, we're just going to call fish. Uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem, man. Happy to be on as always. Uh, good hearing from you. Uh, hope you're enjoying the weather we're getting right now. Yeah, we're getting hammered. Um, also, I just wanted to say that to everyone that's listening. If, uh, if I do go offline and don't come back, it's because the power went out here. Um, we have the wor one of the worst storms come hit us in a decade in California is slamming into San Diego right now and uh, and the all of Southern California for that matter. So uh, if either I or fish goes offline, that's what happened. Um, I've got perfect weather out here, so hopefully I'll keep it going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thankfully we have someone on a different continent, so we definitely have to worry about that storm uh, causing a total sh show end. Um, but I do. Uh, I did have one uh, uh, quick preface I want to mention real quick. Um, I wanted to say a big shout out to um, True Aquaponics. Excuse me, True Aquaponics. Um, you guys can go to trueaquaponics.com. Uh, let me double check that. Make sure it's not dot org. Ah, I should have checked that beforehand. Anyways, yeah, trueaquaponics.com. Um, I have uh, just partnered up with them. I'll be doing all their uh, customer consulting in the future for them. So if you guys ever need help with your vegetable garden or your commercial design or anything like that, um, definitely uh, give them a ring. Or if you're looking for you know, powder nutrients, um, individual nutrients, or even multi-packs um, based on your, your system, definitely go check them out. And um, there's no, you know, it's not a paid advertisement. There's no uh, payment between him and I. We're just working together. Uh, to achieve the same goal. So um, thanks a lot to him and his support. And uh, um, we're glad to, uh, um, you know, make that announcement. Um, Colin, why don't you tell us about uh, how you got started with aquaponics? And, um, you know, uh, yeah, why don't you start? We'll start off there. Yeah, so that sounds good. So the first thing I thought about it was I was randomly looking around Reddit, which I do way too much. But I was going through there and I saw a post on it and I just, fell in love with the idea the first second I saw it. And it just seemed so much easier and it made so much sense. And then the next trickiest thing was convincing my wife to let me do it. So I went for about <laughs> six months of trying to convince her every single day. Like I'd say, aquaponics, it's going to be fantastic. And one day she came home, I was digging a big ass hole in the backyard and welding up a frame for it. And that's basically how it started. She eventually started to see that it did work and it wasn't completely crap. So she got along with it when I started bringing in herbs and tomatoes and fantastic things outside. And since then, they just haven't been able to stop me. I've expanded it over my backyard. I've been building up my YouTube channel, which has been going through it. And I just love it. You fish, you pick your fruit and veg out of it. And it's just really so easy. Oh, totally. For those of you that haven't had a chance to check out your channel, um, so why don't you tell people about what it is that you do and, uh, you know, uh, about your systems and and how you uh, came to about your YouTube channel and and yeah. 
Okay, so basically how I started the YouTube channel is I'm on the forums way too much. So Backyard Aquaponics, the Reddit ones and those sort of things. And I was just posting random things about showing how stuff was growing in the backyard. And I had people saying, why don't you say anything in the videos? And I thought, yeah, why not? So I started talking and I started making very simple little videos. This is the tomato, this is how I grow it. And this is how I string them up in the system and just random things like that. And it's just continued to evolve off that. Had people started subscribing, then more people started subscribing. and it's just basically gone on from then. It wasn't anything I planned on doing. I didn't go out thinking, oh, this is going to be awesome. But I just kept on uploading content and things that interested me, and it's been going on from there. So now I'm sitting on about 20,000 subscribers, which I'm pretty cool, happy about. And I'm on about 4.5 million views all up on YouTube, which is pretty cool. I'm quite happy with that. And yeah, I think it's just pretty easy. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, your page right now, man. You've got about 19,000 people and a couple million views. Man, I feel like we should yeah. be on your show right now, not the uh, You on the <laughs> show. <laughs> I haven't done any podcasts before, so it wasn't quite sure. I've been more well, paranoid that nobody would really want to rock up and listen to me once. So, yeah, I'll just think about it in the future. Yeah, we feel honored that we're the first podcast, and I also, uh, it's really awesome that you're the first live Australian guest that we've been able to get on the show, so I, I appreciate that. Yeah, we've had some not, not some not living Australian guests, apparently. <laughs> yeah, we've had some, some zombie <laughs> Australian guests, you know. But thank you for being the first live one. We do appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. Happy to Um what uh? What are some things that you've noticed um that are, are kind of different between the U.S. aquaponic uh industry and or culture, and then the the Australian industry and or culture? That you know, is there anything that stands out to you in in that aspect? The biggest thing that I can really see the difference between the two of them is climate, because I look at some of the U.S. sites and some of the U.S. pages and everything, and everything freezes over over the winter, which would make a massive difference because. At the moment, in the middle of winter, I can grow lettuce, I can grow basil, I can grow pretty much everything I want in the backyard. But you guys, it freezes over, so I wouldn't have any idea how to look after the fish when it's top of the tanks freezing over and those sort of things. So we get a much longer time to grow everything, I think. And that, that comes into one of the major differences between the two of them. I understand there's a big area of difference in the climate over there, but from what I've seen online, there's just and I can grow perennials and everything out there. So things like strawberries, I can grow year round. I've got passion fruit, which are growing outside in the weather and that sort of stuff, which I think is pretty cool. And yeah, everything just grows really well and really easily. And where I live in Adelaide, Australia, we have a really dry climate. So over summer, I just it's pretty much useless trying to grow anything in the soil because we don't rain for about four months of the year and we get 40 degree heat waves, which I think that works out to about 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, and yep. it's just massive temperature difference. And if you try and grow anything in the soil, my soil here is horrible clay. So growing anything without chuckering in masses of compost and all those sort of things, it's just incredibly hard. So that's where aquaponic comes in really, really good for me. I set it up, I pump the water throughout the whole thing. It doesn't use that much water and it's just so easy. I can be really, really lazy and it just works. That's wonderful. What are your, some of your favorite crops to grow in aquaponics or stuff you found that does particularly well? And then is there anything that's kind of, I guess, less traditional or less common um, that may, you, know, you might want to suggest to people? Uh, the biggest thing that I usually grow is tomatoes. So I've got, I think it's about eight beds out of the back and 
six of them are devoted towards tomatoes at the moment. So I just grow way too many of them. And I've been bottling them up, collecting seeds, and just trying all the different varieties I've got. I've got, I've tried pretty much everything I can in the system. So I've tried fruit trees, which didn't do particularly well. I've tried, I've got strawberries growing like crazy in there, rhubarb, anything I can think of that I grow in the ground, I've tried growing it at aquaponics. And it all just, with the exception of a couple of things like potatoes, which don't like growing in the aquaponics, they just come out really wonky. And yeah, but yeah, I like to experiment. So anything really. I just whack it in the ground and whack it in the um, beds and it just grows. I can't imagine there's that much difference in what you can grow, just the climate and what you can continue to grow. So I've got raspberry canes, which are growing quite well inside of it. I've got perennial herbs, which just keep on going year round throughout it. And what, um, what are your favorite tomato varieties that you like to grow? It depends on which ones you want. So I've got romas out there which go really, really well for sauce. You just get so much fruit out in one go. But if you're going the very, very best tomato, the one that I like the most, there's a black cherry, which are just sweet. They grow so prolifically and they are just an awesome fruit to get out of it. I've had some other ones, like those little roma cherries that just grow like crazy, little yellow broad ripples. And I've got a whole little booklet of seeds that I've bought online and I've probably got about 50, 50, 60 different varieties in there, which I'm trying to surf on my way through if I went a bit crazy buying them. And sadly, I don't have enough room to grow all of them every single year. So yeah, I just keep on going through it and see what I can find. That's awesome. Is there any um, particular varieties of uh, other crops you'd like to suggest to people or um, they think might, um, uh, you know, any any other, I guess, oddball crops that you found as particularly well in aquaponics that you've tried to grow? Uh, there's one that I've got. So um, have you guys heard of a chop and come again sort of lettuce? Uh, what was the variety? I'm sorry. It's called, a, it's the sort of lettuce it is. It's a chop and grow sort of variety of lettuce. So when I get this one, it's one that you can chop the leaves off and they keep on coming back. So it keeps on coming back. So it doesn't try and form a head, but you can keep on chopping off different leaves. So I've discovered when you get those sort of seeds, if you oversow them in a media bed, they will just keep on coming up and you'll get a massive bushy just growth of lettuce and you can keep on chopping up as much as you want. So from about a meter by meter bed, I had enough lettuce for probably about 20, 30 salads a week, which was really cool. And it just keeps on coming back and back. And that's one of my favorite ones to grow in it. So I haven't seen that much other people doing it because I'll see a lot of people that grow nice, fantastic heads of lettuce, but I just grow this sort that's a nice, sweet, um, lettuce leaf and you just keep on chopping off so making a salad go in there chop off what I need throw it straight in the bowl and within a week it's grown back to the point that you can chop it again and you just get so much out of it and I say I've got oh, some seeds wonderful. there somewhere but yeah it's just one that grows really really well and um, I haven't had any problems at all with it yeah, it's just really simple sprinkles chop done so what uh what do you guys do? What is your kind of your go-to pest control down there in Aussie land? I know that you guys have some different um, products or different thoughts on on that for aquaponics. Uh, pest control. I am extremely lazy. So to be honest, this entire season I haven't done anything for pests. There's been nothing at all I've done. I haven't really needed to because that's one of the good things about the climate in Adelaide. We don't have to worry about fruit flies, which you do have to in Queensland and those sort of places. The worst I usually get is little caterpillars and you get this um, bacterial dipel spray that you get, so it's a little powder you mix through water, you spray it on there, the caterpillars eat it up and then they start headbanging for a little while, fall off and die. And apart from that, the only other ones I usually have trouble with is ants 
and then I'll basically follow little ant trails back to the nest and put antrid, which is a sticky sort of ant killer stuff. You put it around it, they'll all start eating it, they'll take it back to the nest, and it usually wipes out the nest. And apart from that, I haven't had much trouble, apart from bugs and snails. But I figure I let the chickens out, the chickens run around the ground and around the beds, and they all seem to disappear, which is quite cool. I've had massive infestations of slugs before, but you let the chickens out and they give me really, really red yolks after they munch down on all the slugs and the snails and everything, and it works quite well. But apart from that, I haven't done anything at all. It's just, I'd be lazy with it. You know what the secret uh, secret weapon against slugs and snails is, right? What? You go take uh, some butter trays or a shallow bowl, something with a real short lip that they, you know, you can kind of half put oh, down a little bit. And you put beer in there. They love beer, and they drown from they uh, they die from the alcohol because they absorb it through their skin and their body, and they end up overdosing on alcohol. You have to check out my video, the slug war, the great slug war. <laughs> I did a whole lot of trialing, so I got some. Um, I googled as much as I could to try and figure out which one was the best remedy for it. Because I've got little time lapse that I took on one of the beds overnight, and they were just absolutely swarming with slugs. I was quite amazed with it. So I started doing a whole lot of tests. Because I read that you could oh, use wonderful. dust beard, you could use um, a little yeast mixture that goes inside of it. And the thing that actually surprised me, when I put it on it, you look at the slugs going for it, and you see a lot at the bottom of it, but a lot of them will drink it, and I think they just get a little bit drunk or a little bit tipsy and then wander off. Because I just found <laughs> massive videos. Hold on, I'll link the video in the comments down below. Well, if you send it to me, I'll, I'll put it in the description. Yeah, shoot it to me in an email, and I'll add it to the description yep. of the, of the uh, podcast. Yeah, but I've got a video there of it going through it. And it just shows you the, um, just, because I was quite surprised. I thought when you see that many of the dead slugs in the little containers at the end of the day, that they would keep on eating it and they'll just be dying. But they just seem to have a sip, they just seem to sip and run off. That 90% of them have a sniff, have a sip of it and run off. And then <laughs> you get 10% that are left in it. I was quite surprised because they're just getting quite happily drunk off my drink with you myself. And, yeah, right? Like you're just providing yeah. free alcohol for the little bastards. Yeah, they're eating my fruit and veg, and then they're drinking my beer, little bastards. So, yeah, I found the best thing was to let the chickens out. The chickens out, they'll go through, they'll pick them all off, they'll quite happily give me very red yolks, and they eat all the slugs, which is quite fun. I hear that um, the ducks are a lot better for it, but I can't really have any ducks in the backyard. So yep. chickens do quite well. Now, is the, did you find anything else that worked in, on the, in all that testing? Uh, not really. I found the chickens. Master. I did have some other tests planned, but I figured the chickens let out. I didn't think they would eat too many of them, but I took time lapse about two days after I let the chickens out, and they were pretty much gone, which was quite cool. Wow, that's amazing. Well, so when what you check there... the video out after the podcast, you'll see how many there were in there, and it was just an insane amount of bugs. <laughs> and what what other uh, what other type um, you know tests or, or longer term things have you worked on? or test that, you know, that people can visit videos on on your site? Uh, one of the ones that's a bit of a long-term test for me this year is I've been trialing different nutrient profiles for growing things like tomatoes. Because the normal um, like fertilizer you get out of fish poo and you run out of nitrates and that sort of stuff throughout it is very, very good for growing things like lettuce. So there's a very high nitrogen content in the natural um, fish fertilizer that goes through it. And a lot of that is way too high for tomatoes. So I've been practicing in adding things like potassium nitrate into the system and to keep it 
pretty much in line with the, what the professional hydro tomato growers do. So I've been watching my calcium levels, I've been watching the um, phosphorus and those sort of things throughout the season and just comparing the growth this season towards the growth last season with the nutrients a lot more targeted towards the tomatoes. And I found that it's been working really, really well. Like just for an example, I've had about twice as many tomato fruit out of it as what I got last year and from about the same amount of area, which is an incredible increase on what I've been doing. So those are the sort of things I've been doing. On the downside, it means that my lettuce have been growing like absolute crap at the moment. They seem yep. to get very stunted and then shoot to seed within about two seconds. And yep. I haven't been able to grow lettuce at all this season, which is annoying as all hell. Things like basil as well have been quite surprising. I haven't been able to grow too many of them. But I think I've been playing around with the nutrient levels and keeping the nitrates down as well, because tomato growth doesn't grow very, very well if the nitrates are too high. You just get way too much leafy growth and you don't have as much fruit out of it. So that's one of the longer term ones. I've got a video that will be coming out soonish about it once it gets a little bit closer towards the end of the season, because I just wanted to get through the season and see if it works before I started recommending it to people. Wonderful. Working really, ever, really well. Have you ever tried growing your tomatoes or peppers in a, with a, you know, a dual root zone method at all? Or? Not really. I haven't really thought about it too much, to be honest. But um, I know it would probably work. Like you put it inside of a basket, inside of the media bed, and then you can add more nutrients to the soil. But yeah, um, the amount of tomatoes I've got in there, I find it's easy to dose up the whole system and keep it going that way. Sure. It's just been working really well. Yeah, I've definitely found that doing flowering crops in one system and, and then your leafy green type crops in another is definitely a, a far easier way to do it than in a, trying to do them both in the same system. Yeah, it's just something to grow as well. I know tomatoes, they'll grow all right together, but you won't get the fantastic growth when they're both towards their peak, what they'll grow. So I started Googling around and I found the optimum nutrient levels and everything for tomatoes, and they're very different to the optimum growing temperatures and growing techniques for lettuce. But it's, I like tomatoes more than I do lettuce, so yeah, I've been growing them more. And things like strawberries have been thriving in the same environment. So I've got strawberries in there and they've been going nuts. I've got uh, passion fruit that's been growing like crazy in the system as well under the same sort of um, system. And yeah, it just grows quite well. Wonderful. Uh, are you still there, uh, Fish Ganja guy? I don't mean to interrupt you, Colin. Uh, I am, I am. I just found out that uh, Fish Ganja guy had uh, an emergency come up. He's going to have to run here in 15 to 20 minutes. Would you mind... Uh, if we switch guests real quick, and then we'll we'll come back and ask you some more questions, Colm. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah, yeah no, sorry don't. about that, man. It's a little unplanned. Um, I just got the text message a minute ago that I'm going to have to cut out in a few. Yeah, he just uh, all of a sudden had something come up. So if we can uh, quick get in a few questions with him real quick, is that okay? Yeah, well, good. Good for Wonderful. Um, and then uh, hopefully how, if things are able to clear up, I can get back on the show. Absolutely. Uh, how are you? Uh, how have you been? Um, I know you've been uh, doing a little bit of work trying to plan um, some some new stuff. And uh, how's your grow going? You had a bunch of great, cool videos on your your YouTube oh, channel. Man. Harvest was fantastic. Uh, couldn't be better. Everything's curing wonderfully. I got uh, one of my critical cure phenos. Is it smells like good cheddar cheese. I got another one. It smells like some kind of pepper jack. I can't wait to check some of these out. And then um, something I'm going to be doing on my channel and uh, in my grow coming up is I've got a little side-by-side -side study I'm doing, building a new uh, grow room next week. And I have uh, one of my old Phytomax 400s from Black Dog, and I'm going to be getting one of the brand new Phytomax 2 series uh, from Black Dog uh, in the next uh, like two weeks. And I'm going to be running that against two uh, Spectrum King 400s. Other than uh, new ones, the new ones. 
uh, from Spectrum King. Yeah. Uh, like the computer, it looks like a computer CPU cooler on it, kind of. Are you talking about the 600? The yeah, I think I'm talking about the 600s. The ones yeah. I was just over at the dude. Uh, the last trip I was back in Colorado I was over at the dude from the dude grow show's house. Yeah, that's the his, okay. No, those things are beasts. But uh, oh my god, those things are like absolute daylight. It's like you you turn that light on and it was like holy shit. But that is yeah. the, the brightest light Even I think I've ever seen. In my life. I turned one of those on and at a they're, relative. They're over, ridiculous, dude. And she kind of glanced over her shoulder towards where I was like 10 minutes later. She's like, am I going to stop seeing this stupid ring of light? Yeah. It takes like 30 <laughs> minutes for your eyes to not burn. Yeah. It's insane. The six. So if you think that's bad, you should see the 600. The 600 is absolutely insane. Yeah. But I'm, I'm super stoked on uh, that. I'm going to be running these two, uh, the two four hundreds um, for the guys uh, over at spectrum King and um, seeing what these differences in uh, spectrums are going to do for the plants. So at the end of the study, I'm going to be doing, um, I'm going to have all kinds of plants in there, but uh, the ones that are under the, um, the lights for the study, they're going to be from the same mother, same cuts and everything. And they're getting the same fish water, same nutrients, only difference is the spectrum. And at the end of the study, I'm going to do weights. But more importantly, what I'm concerned with is the potency testing. And also when I see the, uh, uh, the terpene profiles that the different spectrums of light can bring out. So well, remind we me when you come, remind me when I see you to add to your projects. You're gonna have to say that again. The storm's uh, getting to you. Oh, I said, um, remind me when you come down next month and I see you to give you some seeds for your project. Oh, rock and roll, man. Oh, I forgot. I'm sorry, I screwed up. I, I that should be clearer now. My audio should be a little cleaner. I didn't realize this. I moved my modem for a second. Yeah, you're good now. Um, did you get the email that I sent you a few minutes ago with uh, the link? Yes, I did. Um, if you guys are looking to check out uh, Fish Ganji Guy's channel, it'll be in the description. Um, I'm going to add it here in a few minutes. Um, uh, if you're looking for more, he's a real... Um, both him and I are very uh, regularly on the Do Grow show, very good friends with those guys over there. And um, uh, I'm... I'm pretty close to where he is and about two, two and a half hours away, maybe three. So we, we see each other on a regular basis and they're collaborating on a bunch of stuff. So uh, uh, definitely uh, check out his channel. True, true. And uh, yeah, the latest video is uh, the harvest episode. So it's basically just a nice little slideshow to music of uh, some good uh, bud shots showing people what you really can bring some amazing quality with aquaponics. You don't have to go with hydro to get something that's pretty, but you can get it with aquaponics and you can get the great flavor and beyond what you would get with soil. So it's definitely worth checking out. The, the flavor is not even comparable. Like it's, it's like laughably different. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, let's see what else is going on. So for this new room, I'm going to be breaking down the, uh, the vegetable garden that I have over at my folks place. So that way I can use the, uh, 275 gallon, uh, IBC tote, um, and all the tilapia and koi that I have on that. And uh, I'm going to bring it over to where my medical grow is and you have to scrub down all the four by four grow beds and uh, make sure they're all sterile before I put them in and nothing uh, nasty from outside. So I'm going to have some companion planting going and get some chives and some uh, basil, oregano, and uh, some 
Oh, what was it? Some mint, but I know mints roots will grow wild. So I'm gonna make sure to keep that in a fabric pot, fabric pot to contain it. But um, are you gonna be doing any? I know you're about to build a new grow room. Are you gonna do any uh, build videos? Um, not really, because I'm just gonna try and knock that thing out in like a day. I'll explain the room and how we did it, um, maybe in a video. But as far as uh, building the room, my buddy and I were just gonna knock that out in an afternoon. So we're just gonna be focusing ah. on that. You should make um, a vi you should you should document that you know throw up a camera throw up your phone or something and record it. Or well, I don't want to be playing with the chop saw while I've got the Deadpool mask going. <laughs> I probably keep all my fingers. Um, no, no, but, no. I know, but I mean, like at least maybe even a step by step. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be while you're cutting wood. Yeah, but I think that would uh, that be, a lot of people would be interested in that. I think for sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I might be able to get some. Uh, some shots in there. Plus, I'm going to be filming in the next uh, week how to do a uh, radial flow filter. I'm building a new one to uh, put next to the grow room, so that way I have uh, less solids floating into the tank. Since I'm not doing them uh, a foot deep in media like I was originally, I'm trying to do it the way that uh, I saw in your setup over in Colorado, where you just have your biofilter as the bottom half of the pots um, with the hydrogen in there. Um, my one concern did come true where there was a lot of excess uh, fish solids uh, coming through and also some of the algae that I had to deal with. So I'm going to try and at sure. least eliminate the fish solids and the algae. I'll just uh, um, maybe put a pleco or some small pleco up on each grow bed. <laughs> yeah, we only had about 20 fish in the in that tank. So I guess it was deceiving in certain ways. Uh, were they full-sized? Uh, about half of them were half of them were younglings. We we were, but what I was doing is I was keeping just a handful of fish that I particularly liked color wise, and the rest were getting kicked out to the greenhouse. So, okay. <laughs> hey, Colin, what uh, what kind of fish do you have going? Um, goldfish basically. I've tried trout and I've tried Murray cod and those sort of things, but I don't really like eating freshwater fish that much. It doesn't taste the greatest so yeah just goldfish i like i've been trying to breed them so i've got some breeding experiments that i've been going through them and yeah goldfish simple you, uh, and easy they're quite hardy do you do any aronda goldfish the ones with the big bubbly heads yep my yeah. biggest video on youtube is doing surgery on one of those guys you know i think i've actually seen that video before where you uh to get one of the wen off by the eye or something yeah yeah that's the one yeah I that video. That, oh that was you okay um, yeah, because uh, you ever have any uh, swim bladder issues with them where they just keep floating to the top? Yeah, yeah it happens every now and again with some of them. There's not much you can, I mean, you can change feed and everything, but there's not much you can do when they've got a really bad genetic deformity like that. There's a good question. Because I've got one that's it's still bobbing at the top, man. I've been doing everything. After yeah, so you've, treated it, you've treated him with this, uh, so he uh, originally, um, uh, Fish Ganja guy had actually messaged me privately about this, and I told him to give him a salt water dip. And traditionally, not always, but I would say about eighty to ninety percent of the time, when you give the fish a salt dip and a what you do is you about a, a pound of salt water in a five gallon bucket. And this works mm -hmm. for ick, external parasites, and swim bladder issues. And the reason why it works on swim bladder issues is because fish have evolved a mechanism with their swim bladder where if the saline level is beyond a certain point that comes through their nostrils, which happen to have sensors that detect uh, saline level, um, which is how salty the water is, 
um, they regulate the salt level in their blood based on the surrounding water, and they, they kind of balance for that. Their kidneys do. Um, so I forget if it's kidneys or liver. I'm 99% sure it's the kidneys, though. Um, sorry, I'm just a little bit fuzzy today. I've been kind of a, a really, really good day that I, I can't tell any of you guys about because I'm under NDA right now. But I'll have some amazing announcements here in a couple of months. Um, um, so I've been celebrating almost slightly too much. Um, anyways, <laughs> uh, some of the people on, on the podcast know a little bit about it. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I had a lot of new people I'm going to be working with that had a lot of good news to say today. Um, but, but how it works is when you give the fish a, a big salinity change, uh, for instance, when you mix up about a pound of aquarium salt in a five-gallon bucket, it mixes the salinity up to a 0 0.018, which is um, a specific gravity, which is you know not quite seawater, but pretty close. When you put a freshwater fish in there for about a minute or a minute or two, what happens is the fish, its um, swim bladder uh, detects that the salinity is dramatically different than the surrounding water, so it causes this forced contraction which immediately expels all the water out of or air depending on how the fish is trying to be uh, the fish can fill it with water or air depending on uh, the surrounding water based on buoy uh, salinity and buoyancy and there's a couple of the factors that work into that but anyways so basically when the salinity is too much different than where they just were meaning you bring the fish from an aquarium with fresh water over to an aquarium that is salt water the uh, uh, when when it, when that happens, it triggers the fish to have a forced contraction of that swim bladder, and when the swim bladder contracts, it expels all the water or air that's in there, and it, it fills up with the salt water or it fills up with the appropriate amount of air. When that happens, you're helping flush out any infection or pus or flush it with salt water or it causes multiple different beneficial reactions in the fish when it causes that forced reaction then you leave them in there for about one a minute to a minute and a half and then you put them back into the fresh water and it, it basically breathes back in fresh water now when you slam around both the ph when a very short period of time which is okay you know a minute and a half is okay it won't hurt the fish at all or you slam the salinity in that short a period of time the microbes, be it anchor worm, ick, uh, a, uh, a swim bladder infection, not always, but a large percentage, 75 to 80% of the time, um, uh, that happens to cause, you know, cure those issues. And the issues, you know, in the sake of ick, the salinity difference, uh, the buoyancy difference causes the eggs to burst on the outside of the fish. Um, you can also do the same thing with salt water and fresh water. So if I have a saltwater fish that has saltwater ick or saltwater flukes, I can put them in fresh water for a minute and a half. And that minute and a half exposure to fresh water causes the cell walls on those flukes or the ick to burst and basically explode. And you can hear them pop. Like if you put your ear up against the side of it, it'll sound like popcorn. It's amazing. Um, I've done it when I worked in the pet industry because it was the, the, the gentlest way to treat these problems that were chronic issues with wild-caught fish or otherwise, um, you know, uh, heavily bred fish coming over from Asia that were in, you know, big fish farms or XYZ problem. Um, th this was just one of the gentlest ways without using medication that would, you know, cause 
other potential issues or hurt my microbial level and hurt my biological filter or it, it was just a, the gentlest way without screwing up as much other things in the store as possible. Um, and that was one of the things that I learned a, a lot during that. But that's one of the things that I definitely, you know, I suggested to uh, to Fish Ganja guy. So I, I realized it took way too long for that explanation, but uh, I feel like it was a, a fairly uh, detailed explanation. A very detailed explanation. But um, yeah, I've tried that. I've tried warming up the water to help with the digestion. I've tried feeding them uh, some boiled peas every now and then after I deshell them. And uh, nothing's working, man. He's just uh, bobbing at the top. Hey, every once in a blue moon, you get one that, that's like that. I also, the other common, um, or uh, I would say common, common if you're dealing in the pet trade or dealing with an un, unusually large number of fish is that they'll get this um, genetic deformity to their cell, um, not cell walls, abdominal wall where their rib cage and the abdominal wall will get extremely uh, rounded and they'll look almost like they swallowed a golf ball or swallowed a volleyball or whatever. You see it in goldfish or koi sometimes and there's a couple of breeds that even have it as stabilized, um, whether, you know, spherical fish. Um, well, yeah, they're chubby fish. I mean, yep. they're rondas. <laughs> and other common genetic mutations are the anus being on the side of the fish or behind the gills uh, or behind the pectoral fins especially. Um, and not where it's supposed to be. And, and I don't know how common that is. I've never seen that. <laughs> uh, when you breed lots of koi and goldfish and guppies and other <laughs> tropical fish, you see all kinds of weird stuff on a regular basis. Yeah, that's pretty weird. Yeah, yeah goldfish are really good at mutating. Like The amount of different varieties you get from two adults that are exactly the same is incredible. Because uh, One of my last breeding ones had some like, just things like when you get sandtail goldfish and you try and breed them and now to single tail once you get out of it it's just crazy so just so many genetic throwbacks so i imagine a lot of it doesn't work out quite well the fish that's a that's a great topic in fact um i'm so glad you brought that up so for those of you that don't know which is probably a large percentage of you that are have, have purchased goldfish or koi before only about the per, the the store the fish that hit the stores are about 10 to 15 percent maybe 20 at max of the fish that the parents bred. Um, most of the other ones were called out as feeder fish or destroyed or used as fertilizer, um, which a lot of people aren't aware of. For, for, for koi, uh, fancy goldfish, and all those other, you know, particularly strange looking goldfish that do not look anything like a normally shaped fish, um, the, the um, what do they call it? The, I want to say purge rate, but the, the call rate, I'm sorry, the call rate on them is extremely high. And you have to remember that, that 20 to 30% of them are going to come out as black or brown, which are automatically like not sold in, into the market because they're too dark. Um, so those usually end up as fertilizer before the, the gold and the yellow ones, which generally end up as feeder fish or if they're undesirable. So... Is uh, did fish yeah. ganja have to step out or? Okay, so uh, since he had to step out, uh, why don't, uh, let's go back to you, Colin. I apologize for having to switch gears. I normally don't do that. It was just a matter yes. of. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah, the uh, I gotta get going. Okay, but, um, I appreciate we'll get back in a little bit, man. We'll, uh, we'll have a link to your podcast and everything, your, um, I'm not sorry, podcast, your channel and everything on the, uh, on the description and everything like that. All right. And Colm, it was great meeting you, man. Have a great day in Australia. Yep, you too. Enjoy your storm. Yeah. Do my best. Looks like it's going to be a fun one.
How's the wind? <laughs> the wind is slamming my window sideways right now, which is, is pretty awesome. <laughs> so, uh, Colin, why don't you tell us about, um, you know, what uh, what is your what are some things that you found that have been maybe underserved or not um, publicized, or things that you found that have been particularly useful in the aquaponics. Uh, and as far as aquaponics growing in the aquaponics industry is, um, you know, I'm a real passionate about silica, for example. Uh, I talk about that a lot. Uh, what are some things that you found that maybe uh, other people don't know or aren't aware of and, um, you know, could definitely benefit from? Uh, the biggest thing I think is how much people overcomplicate the whole system. So you look at some of the forums and you look at some of the Facebook posts and those sort of things and you see how confusing the whole thing actually looks from somebody that doesn't know anything about it just how incredibly confusing aquaponics can look. People have got filters and it just doesn't need to be that way because uh, they've all got their own uses and you can tinker as much as you want with the system, but it all grows just so well without doing that much at all to it, which is one of the good things I like about it. And it doesn't need to be complicated because you're just pretty much growing, you're pumping water from the fish tank into the grow bed and then letting the grow bed clean the water and take out all the ammonia and nitrates and stuff. And that is pretty much all that's involved because I've seen some horribly confusing um, systems. I've seen some ones that just don't make any sense at all. And people that were playing with bell siphons and putting on little breeder tubes and just, just way people like to overcomplicate things, which is, I think, one of the biggest things. Inside of the systems that I've got growing, um, I just keep it really simple because I don't play around with too many things. I've got a little seeding bed that I used to start seeds off. I take them straight out of there, put them straight in the grow beds, and that's pretty much about it. I don't play around with too many things. I've tried a couple of different medias for growing seedlings and everything. It's, I've tried different gravels for see if there's any different in growth and I haven't noticed anything. Um, yeah, it just all grows quite well without me doing very much at all. That's definitely, I'm glad you brought up the snorkel thing on the, on the bell siphons. That's definitely one of the things that I realized was like, it's over-engineered, and unless you're doing extremely large flood and drain beds, you don't need a snorkel. Now, um, uh, that's so the biggest thing that I've noticed, and maybe, uh, or, or I guess I'll ask you at, at the end, is um, the biggest thing mm -hmm. I've noticed with, with the bell siphon design is that, one, people don't cut a deep enough air gap for people to allow air to vent in at the base of their bell siphon and then two they don't have enough of a vertical drop and then a, a 90 degree like two 90 degree angles in order to get that proper air seal post bulkhead after the actual bell siphon in order to get the proper vacuum chamber uh, vacuum pressure i'm sorry is the better way to state it um in that bell siphon now as long as you do, do those two things and you have a minimum of about a four inch vertical drop below your bulkhead and a uh, you know at least a half inch to an inch of of cut on your how big your ventilation cut is at the very base of your bell siphon. I find that um, uh, sorry uh, at, at the base of your bell siphon. You know that's a great way. Yeah, that's pretty much what I found out as well. I, when I first started playing with them. I had it all filled up at the bottom and they couldn't get air back through it. And like I say, I had a little bit of a, it wasn't completely 90 degrees and I had trouble with it. Once you figure out the very simple little things like that, they just work so well. My biggest bed that I've got there is six meters by, which I think metrics, it's a big bed. Hold on, let me Google. The biggest one I've done is about 12 feet by about um, 20 feet long. 
12, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, yeah. it was about four feet wide by 20 feet long. I apologize. Yeah, but probably about the same length as my one. And the siphon on it works perfectly. I've got no breather tubes, anything like that. And yeah, it just works exactly the same as it does in one of the other beds. I've got the same flow going into that one as I do the smaller beds, and they both kick off perfectly. I don't have to do anything at all to it. And the siphons work really well. One of the things that I recently did was temperature checking between the siphon bed and the cogs of blood because I've read up a couple of different places that were saying that you get a different, um, so if you've got a heat wave that's coming through, you should have it on constant floods instead of siphon. And so I did a bit of mispassing on that sort of stuff. So I've got two very precise temperatures, um, temperature probes, put them inside of both of the beds and then measured the temperature when we have a 40 degree heat wave. And one of the things I discovered was that the siphon bed actually has a much cooler flow. So I found that the water yep. coming in, so I think it's evaporative cooling that goes through it. So whenever the water comes out, the moisture and everything comes up through the stones and cools it as it goes through, which is one of the things I discovered. There's about a 0.25 um, Celsius difference in the water going into the constant flood and the water going into the um, siphon. And the siphon one is surprisingly the cooler one. So I've got a video on that coming out soon. But yeah, it's that's one of the things I discovered. Because, because you see about it a lot on forums and Facebook, let's say, oh, if you're a heat wave, take the siphons out and let run it through constant flood, which makes sense in theory because you don't want hot air getting in between the stones, which warms it up. But the evaporative cooling must be cooling it down and keeping the whole system cooler. Uh, one of the other things, too, is that, I mean, because you have that flooding and draining, you're getting a better gas exchange in that root zone, and that's keeping that, mm -hmm. that media bed cooler. You know what I mean? Just yeah. based on the evaporative and the fact that you're drafting that cool air in that can be, you know, humidified and then pushed back out by that water layer. Um, that's one yeah. of the biggest benefits to the, the, when we do the dual root zone system is that the fact that that flood and drain um, action in that lower half of the pot acts as like a, a diaphragm shoving air through that upper half of the root zone. Um, and that's, you know, one of the reasons why we get the increased growth. Um, but that's that's so interesting. I, I'd love to hear more about that. That that's so I'd like that's so interesting. Uh, I've never done a cybersign. That I've definitely um, on the inverse of that. I've had really good luck with flood and drain beds where we had the water at seventy two or seventy four degrees. Um, at one instance, we had a, a wind wind gust of over eighty five miles an hour, which is I, I don't know what that would be in kilometers. My math is a little bit bad, but like 150, 170, something like that kilometers per hour. Um, if my math is correct, uh, just rough math. You know, what did, what did Bush call it? A uh, fuzzy math. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways, um, so something like that. And we had a whole wall blow off where the whole all the clips came off the one side of the greenhouse. And because the, there was so much heat in the grow bed from the hot water, even though the outside amp temperature was 42, 38 degrees, something like that, the heat coming off that 72, 74 degree water kept all of our plants from being frozen or frost burned because the water coming into the plant via the root zone and just the heat coming off of that grow bed, you know, created a little almost miniature humidity and heat dome around the plants that protected mm. any of them from even getting any frost burn. Um, and that's one of the things that I feel like aquaponics really has a, the no, ability to step in and be better than other industries is because we can climate control through water volume much, much more efficiently th between uh, doing things like uh, GAT systems, ground air thermal exchange, 
or through uh, solar heating of the fish tank and the water that's running through the systems via solar water heating, those are the two biggest advantages aside from the cost reduction of fish food versus hydroponic nutrients that aquaponics can provide to the agricultural industry. And I think that's one of the biggest things that's not emphasized enough in the industry as a whole where we can produce and climate control these things at you know, laughably low rates compared to the hydroponic or even aquapon—I'm uh, 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 sorry, aquapon soil industry—and um, and, and that's one of the biggest reasons why people should look at aquaponics and invest in aquaponics as far as commercially or even in the backyard setting. Um, why it's more cost-effective? Yes, no, that makes sense, and it's one of the things that I discovered. Water volume does the most to stabilize the temperatures because. At the moment, I've got about 17,000 litres, which I, I don't know how much that is in your um, tongue, but yeah, it's a lot of water inside of the system, and it's a hell of a lot more stable. Because I found when I had about a quarter of that amount of water, the, when we had a heat wave that comes through, the temperature would get to about 32 degrees Celsius, which well, about 80 degrees Fahrenheit, I think, roughly. And that's when it starts getting the danger of some of the fish. And Matt, when there's a lot more water there, it stays really... Cool. So it hasn't gone over about 28 degrees Celsius throughout the entire heat waves that we have going through here. And yeah, it's just everything grows so well. I've got the next door neighbors that have traditional soiled gardens out the back and they've got tomatoes growing. And I find when we have a massive heat wave that comes through, their crop just gets wiped out completely. So you look at some of their plants, all the leaves are dying on top of it. And mine, full sunlight, are looking straight up and they're not even building at all inside of the system. I say it goes through a hell of a lot more water in those sort of days. But and that's one of the good things about, again, traditional dirt farming that we have in the state as well, because you've got to put a hell of a lot of water in that to keep it going throughout the summer. And we use hardly any of this, which is, I think, really cool. Absolutely. Um, mm. uh, so what are, uh, I guess, what advice do you have to people that are just starting to uh, get interested in aquaponics or that are looking to get started in building their own first garden? Uh, for people just starting is don't overthink it. If you want to see if it works, you want to see how it works, get yourself an IBC, chop it, put some um, gravel, something cheap in the top farm, fish in the bottom, pump it back and forth. That's the easiest way to get it started and one of the simplest to get good results out of it because you've got a decent, you don't have masses of water inside of it, but you've got enough to get it started. If you try with something like a barrel, then you don't have as much water temperature and you can have more troubles coming out. So the bigger the system is, the more stable it will be. And once you see how it works, then that's when it's time to expand and expand into the room that you have. So, and to the climate and the conditions that you've got as well. Because in the US, then you've got really cool climates, you'll need greenhouses and that sort of stuff. But it really depends where you So, yeah, just give it a go, basically. It's not as complicated as what, the, what a lot of the forums and the, that sort of stuff makes it out to be. And some of the videos, you look at some of the YouTube videos and they go through all the complicated things that they're doing. And it doesn't need to be that way. You're pumping water from the fish tank to a grow bed and back. You can overcomplicate it. So once you get more fish in there and you've got solid issues, you can add filters and those sort of things to it. But as long as you follow some of the basic things like stocking rates and water volume and that sort of stuff, then it's really not complicated. Follow the basics and don't overthink it. And grow what you like to eat. So that's one of the big things I'd recommend to people. They say, oh, what can I grow in there? And basically grow what you like to eat. If you things like beetroot, if you never eat beetroot, then don't bother trying to grow it because you don't particularly like it. If you yeah, look at what you buy at the shops weekly, if you buy lots of tomatoes, then grow lots of tomatoes. If you buy lots of lettuce, grow lots of lettuce. And just try and keep your shopping bill down by what you can grow in the backyard. Wonderful. 
And let me know if I talk too fast because I have a habit of doing that when I start waffling on. I just have to keep myself talking slowly. I can usually edit it out of videos, but this is live, so it's a little bit harder. Well, I, I just spent half a year living in Jamaica, so I'm used to people speaking in really fast <laughs> patois. But yeah, maybe just speak slightly slower. Um, you know, I guess. Uh, so what are the... Uh, what are some of the common um, uh, supplements people use for aquaponics in Australia versus the, oh, maybe not versus the United States, but what are the most common ones used in Australia? Uh, the most common ones probably iron, because it's the one thing that you can't get inside of the fish food. Um, you can get it, um, like, so pretty much no fish food that I know of has iron that's already built into it. So you've got to add the chelated iron, and that's pretty much the only one that you need to add. Um, when you're starting off a system, there's things called sea salt, which you get in Australia, which I don't think you get overseas, but it's basically a seaweed extract, and it has all the micronutrients that will take a little bit of time to build up from the normal fish, fish feed itself. And you add that in, and you can start planting straight away. Everything will grow very well off that. If you want to complicate things after that, then there are phosphorus, there are um, potassium, there are things like that that you can add, but it's really not necessary when you get started. Um, you just want things to grow and to grow well. And yeah, so iron is pretty much the only one major thing that you need to add. And yeah, keep it simple. Um, what are, uh, what, I guess, what is the common fish feed down there? Are you guys all using pellet feed or are you guys doing insects or what is it that you guys use for the bulk of your feed down there? Uh, pretty much I think the same as what you got there. Do you guys got spreading seafood, uh, fish food? Is that an Australian one or is that an overseas one? Okay. Um, what yeah, uh, so spreading is the major fish food that we use here. Um, I've seen a couple of people experiment with other things. Like I've seen some people on the forums that have had their own stuff made up out of land-based um, soybeans and that sort of stuff. So yeah, I basically use the normal spreading aquaculture sea fish food, and it works really well. I get massive growth out of the goldfish. The plants thrive, and I've found as long as it's a really oily-based fish food, then the plants and the fish do really, really well. When you find that it's a very dry-looking fish food, then they don't do as well. Okay. Um, to the uh, what is your um, what is your recommendation on the the first set of plants that people should try for an aquaponic system? Um, whatever you like to eat. First thing, first thing that I put in the system when I did it was tomatoes, and they grew fantastically. So. Um, I've heard a couple of people say that you need to let the nutrients build up in the system before you add things like tomatoes, which will take a lot of nutrients out of the system. But I found that adding a little bit of sea salt or sea salt power feed, like um, seaweed-based extracts to the system just help everything grow really, really well from the beginning. So I saw some things that you should only grow lettuce in the first year, but I think that's crap, to be honest, because everything grew really, really well in the first season. The second season, it went even better. The third season, it went even better. But of the dirt, ground, dirt gardening that I was doing, they just took off and they grew far, far, far better. So anything really, whatever you want to eat, throw in there. Because the worst thing that could happen is that the plant dies. And it's really not that bad of a thing. Like, I mean, it sucks that the plant dies, but that's the worst outcome that you get from it, then that's really not that bad. So experiment with it, throw seeds in there, throw whatever you want in there, but listen to too much on what Because I found things like fruit trees, they didn't grow, but I've seen other people that have grown them with massive success. So what works for one person might not work for another one, so experiment. Things like cucumbers, for some reason last year they did not want to grow for me at all. This year they are thriving. So I couldn't really explain it, but yeah, because... <laughs> 
That's definitely, uh, I guess my biggest advice for cucumbers and squash especially is the, to add silica to your system. They tend to, mm. to have a pretty uh, severe silica sensitivity, and especially when it comes to um, putting off fungal infections, when you have the proper silica levels, it really dials them in and uh, really helps them fend off. You don't get that white powdery buildup on the leaves. Mm. and The plants tend to yield a little bit more. So how do you usually add it? Are you adding silica sand to the grow bed or is it? So you know how like traditionally if you're going to dose your potassium, um, you need just potassium carbonate and calcium carbonate. Uh, that's commonly sold as a pH up or, um, you know, potassium hydrate or hydroxide, I'm sorry, or calcium hydroxide. Yeah. Um, instead of using those potassiums, you use potassium silicate uh, is the easiest way in order to adjust. It'll raise your pH pretty similarly and uh, yeah. it'll account for your silica. Okay. Now I think that it go. And it's fairly adding cheap. It there, so that might be why having some issues with it. I haven't tried any of it before. So how much does it raise the pH by? Because that's one of the things that I've got an issue in my system. There's a lot of lime, um, lime based. I think when they condition the water in our state, they add a lot of lime based stuff to it. So I've got a very high naturally pH and it takes a while for it to come down. So that's why I added potassium nitrate. Because I didn't want the pH to shoot up too much, but how much do you find that increases normally through? So, so if you're trying to use that, you can also use silicon dioxide, which has a small increase in pH, but a much slower reH. But it's much more expensive. Um, but it's a much okay. less pH increase. Okay. Do you know any resources that have all that sort of information in it, like how much to add to X amount of water or? X amount of parts per million increase or? Uh, I don't off the top of my head, but I have all that stuff on, on hand and I'm happy to email it over to you. Yeah, email it to me. Curious about it because it's so hard finding that sort of information online because it's just not much about it. Like trying to find the nutrient profile for the tomatoes took me a lot of Googling before I'd be able to find how much potassium for different growth periods and that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah so if you got information, email it to me. I might try and put it in a video. I'll give you a heads up. Absolutely. In the States, we have a product called Mad Farmer um, Silica, which is potassium silicate, and that's one of my favorites uh, as far as people that are in the U.S. that are looking to purchase something off the shelf. Um, but, mm. uh, you know, I'm sure there's an equivalent similar type product in Australia. I'll just have to do a little research to, to send you a link. Yeah, send me the information for it. Yeah, because one of the things I have had trouble with fungal stuff on the cucumbers, I'll get about three quarters of the way through the season and then you start getting the rust on them and you'll start getting the powdery mildew and those sort of things. And I'm a little bit too lazy to start treating them with milk and those sort of things because yeah, I'm a bit lazy with it. And tomatoes just seem to thrive next to them. Things like pumpkin as well, I haven't had much luck in it because by the time that the plant gets big enough to start putting out the fruit, then you usually get the powdery mildew, which I think is an issue with my area as well. But So that's, yeah. so I'm glad you brought that up. So, Lack of silica is one of the biggest causes of, of powdery mildew outbreak. If your silica and calcium and magnesium are dialed in, it is really hard for powdery mildew to get established. And even if it does, it doesn't take off like wildfire like it traditionally does in an aquaponic system because of the humidity and the high nitrogen. It makes it a very favorable mm. environment for that. But as long as you're dosing your silica above 80 parts per million to 120 parts per million, if you're growing a lot of squash or a lot of cannabis in your system, um, that really yeah. makes a night and like an absolute night and day difference. I've, I've done this both in an outdoor and an indoor setting multiple times and it just completely eradicates how like the ability for 
for those fungal spores to spread throughout a room. It keeps them isolated so that you can just ax the one or two plants that happen to have it and then just be done with it. Yeah. You know, you don't have to worry about it taking over your grow or whatever. Um, but it's one of the things that, especially in, in a closed environment, I've had oh, a lot of testing for. Because, yeah, yeah, it's one of the things I've had trouble with. Like, I tried pumpkin, and they just never seem to get through the season without dying off. Same thing in the soil as well, because I think it's just, I've tried growing them in the soil, and I can't really get particularly far with it. So, yeah, I'll give it a go next season. It's starting to get a little bit late in the season to plant some more, but, yeah, I'll make sure I'll try it for next season. I've heard of it that much, so, yeah, I'll give it a go. That's awesome. Um, I had a quick, um, <clears throat> so uh, Aquaponic Dummy was kind enough to, to donate a product as a giveaway for this episode. Um, he's donating a free Hannah iron checker. Uh, it's an HC iron color meter, zero to five parts per million range, which is exactly what you need for cannabis growing or vegetable growing or lettuce growing or whatever it is you're doing for aquaponics. Um, I want to give him a big shout out. Um, leave a comment in the, uh, in the, in the uh, video and we'll pick a winner. Um, he'll pick a winner and then whoever wins will uh, will he's gonna mail that to you um, you must be within the lower 48 states of the United States and um, his company is uh, Van Buren hydroponics LLC based out of Maine and uh, if you guys are interested or you happen to be up in Maine give him a call at 207 868 4115 that is a non-paid promotion you know not giving me anything financially just full disclosure um because i know that it's come up a lot in other industries uh anyways um he's a real good friend of the show he's been on the show before and uh, he was kind enough to donate to this donate that to us so um please give him a shout out and thank him and uh, leave your love on the video and um We'll pick a, a winner before next episode and we'll announce that on the next episode. So thank you very much for him for taking the time to donate us and uh, trying to participate. And um, we'll get him back on the show again soon. I know he's been through a, a lot of crazy stuff up in Maine with their uh, legal, legal uh, rigmarole and all the fun stuff with them trying to get established. And uh, we're going to get him on the show again soon to talk about how that, uh, um, I guess, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to word it. I don't want to use the word clusterfuck, but um, the unrolling of their cannabis laws have, have been working as far as um, I know they definitely almost went back on the fact that they were going to allow uh, cannabis clubs and a few other things and that may be in jeopardy now. And it's been kind of a complete mess, almost as bad as Jamaica or Puerto Rico. So <laughs> um, I'd be great to get him on the show yeah. soon. So. No, it's really nice to learn that sort of stuff. That's something good to get to. Actually, I do have a question for you, Marty, I would help with. Sure. What do you use for testing a lot of the things in your system? So the, um, like the phosphorus, the potassium, the silica, what sort of things do you use to test the levels inside of it? So for phosphorus, there's a planted aquarium test kits that you can get that test within the range that we're looking for. I think they test up to 80 parts per million, um, some of the higher-end ones. HANA makes them, Lamote makes them, and then... Um, um, Hold on, I'll pull up the other company that makes the other really good tests. Uh, Are they digital They vary depending on the accuracy and the range that you want to do. Um, give me two seconds. The ones that I've been using are the, um, yeah, the ones that I've been using. There's a planted aquarium one like you've been talking, but you put the drops into it, you put a little bit of water, you shake it in. And the one that I've got doesn't go down to the fine enough scale. So, potassium. 
I've been trying to keep it around 200 parts per million and the test of the lowest it gets to is to about 300 parts per million. So I've been keeping on adding more drops in to try and keep it, um, to try and get an accurate enough reading. But I wasn't sure if there's anything that's more dialed into what we need to do or something that has more tests inside of it or for the sure, different silico so levels. That... Sure. So for... Um... For instance, if you're trying to do like for most aquaponics, zero to thirty, you'll get you pretty close. Or you can do a um, if you want to test up to sixty, you just cut the the volume in half. So I dose half that amount of water and then add the other half as RO water so that it's pure. And you can do what is mm. called a, a like a, a half test or there's a, a scientific name for that. Anyways, you you can use that to test higher based on the volume level as long as you're accurate on it. Um, but Hannah has a phosphorus high range checker that cause um, that you can range zero to thirty parts per million, which is uh, unless you're growing cannabis, will will generally cover what you're looking for. In in yeah. that, and then um, for potassium, Lamote has the best test kit. Um, Lamote has a uh, they're a, a Canadian based company, and they have a test kit that measures um, six to sixty parts per million. Um, which is really good and uh, that uh, extremely accurate. And again, you can do the half scale tests or the other company I'd recommend you to is red sea phosphorus kits, which measure 150 to 450 parts per million, um, okay. which is anything that, you know, that's ideally for, for vegetable greens, you want about 60 parts per million for flowering plants. Mm -hmm. You want between one and 200 parts per million, depending on what you're doing for, I'm sorry, I'm looking yeah. at the wrong thing here. Uh, for phosphorus, I'm sorry, I disregard what I just said. Those were for potassium. I was just looking at the wrong column on my own chart. Um, <laughs> for, uh, I apologize. Um, so the best, the best test kit for um, uh, for phosphorus, I apologize, is uh, the HANA test kits, and you can do a half scale test as long as you're cutting it with RO water. And get higher than that, um, which is zero to fifteen parts per million, um, and then the Hanna high range, which is zero to thirty parts per million on the phosphorus, and then your ideal for greens, you know, lettuce production is eighteen to twenty parts per million, and then for for flowering plants, you're looking at like fifteen to forty parts per million, um, depending on which crop you're going for in an aquaponic system, assuming you know optimal, everything is optimal. And both of those kits come with 20 tests per kit out of the box, and you can order, you know, replacements after that. Just remember that anytime you guys order from Hannah Direct, it takes an extra long time to um, get their. Uh, they take a long time to ship. Um, the turnaround isn't the fastest, so order it before you think you need it. And then for potassium, uh, I apologize earlier. Um, my favorite test kit for that, uh, Elios has a zero to 400 parts per million. Um, Red Sea is 150 to 450 parts per million. Um, and those two are the best as far as, in my opinion, for the range that you're looking at for fruiting crops or cannabis. Uh, if you're trying to like at home test your, 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 your system in those range between 37 and $44, depending on, you know, at minimum. Okay. Yeah, that's good. I'll have to check them out. Yeah, just, you know, that's a great question. I don't think we've ever talked about that. The companies that I would recommend to you, if you people are looking at home and you're trying to develop your own methods, your own testing, and trying to be super scientific about 
and, and precise about what you're growing at home, check out Hagen, which is H-A-G-E-N. Um, they have a wide range of products on their website. They're based out of Germany. You have Hatch, H-A-C-H, which is another company, uh, which does a lot of testing equipment. You have API, which is Aquarium Pharmaceuticals, which I worked at when I was a teenager. I used to work out of their Shelfont, Pennsylvania facility. I used to actually work in their uh, laboratory where they used to have zombie fish. They'd have fish that had ick and every manner of fish disease you guys could ever think of. And we'd breed healthy fish and then intentionally infect them for the purpose of, of treating them with different products that we would produce um, but we had to keep a huge stock of fish alive um, for testing purposes and that was one of my first jobs in the aquarium slash aquaponic industry at all um, then you have hanna which is uh, an extremely accurate electronic testing company uh, one of the things that i would say is really awesome about hanna checkers is the fact that you you can be totally colorblind and use hanna checkers it gives you a digital readout with a digital reading and an exact number on the, on the display. So if you can't see colors, it doesn't matter. You don't have to read a color chart. It'll give you a dialed-in digital readout of what your parameters are rather than having to deal with um, you know, something like a, a reading a color chart and comparing it to that, which for color colorblind people can be really difficult at times. And that's honestly how I was first introduced to HANA was a colorblind solution because when I worked in Philadelphia, um, we had a lot of colorblind customers because for those of you who don't know, colorblind people are between eight and 11% depending on country of the population. So it ends up being more common than you'd think. So hmm. they're one of the best go-to companies as far as not super, I mean, they're expensive, but they're not super expensive. But if you're colorblind, it gives you an option to do hobbies and things that you otherwise would be closed off to because of the testing equipment. Um, and then Red Sea is an aquarium company in the United States. And then the other company I recommend people to look into is Lamote, L-A-M-O-T-T-E. Um, they're a, Can uh, a Canadian-based company that, that does extremely... Uh, extremely high um, sensitivity levels tests and they have tests for damn near everything to the point where it's kind of ridiculous some of the stuff that they have so you know between those companies and a company called elios uh, e-l-o-s those are the other company i recommend between all of those you can generally find the test kit that you need well, I'm glad you brought that up because it's a topic that I've never thought to bring up, but I actually have a ton of information on. Um, so I very much appreciate your uh, you bringing that up. No, it's all good. It's, yeah, it's just some of the stuff I haven't been able to find that much information. Oh. Out of the go, and you Google aquaponics, water testing, and anything beyond nitrates, the ammonia, and those sort of things, you just can't find that information for. So no. yeah, it's good information to have. I'm actually in the process of writing a couple different books right now on aquaponics specifically, and in that is links to you know test kit products and ranges. And one of the things that I did when I used for for helping people out um, when they messaged me is, um, and if anyone wants to has a problem or any you know any question, again, always ask me. You know, we love to have questions that we ask on the show. We love to answer them on the show and help everyone learn rather than just, you know, answering your individual question via email. We love to help people and via email. So, but when we get questions via email, we love to answer them on here so that as many people can learn from the process as we can. 
Um, and one of the things I did was build a, a big test kit spreadsheet and um, I use it for when I'm, I'm giving advice and things like that. And, um, you know, if you're trying to, to check those kind of stuff, uh, it's definitely something, um, you know, that, that, that's helpful to have. Uh, if anyone ever has a question on that or, you know, I, I'm really happy that we had a, a chance to get to this question because it's one of those ones where it's super important, especially if you're trying to develop a, a particular model or, or XYZ or focused in on a particular problem it really helps isolate things which um I, coming from a computer and it background one of the one of the um i guess ways you'd describe trying to determine where a problem is especially when you work on like large-scale projects is uh fault isolate which is i guess a military-ish term i used to work for the armory post office full disclosure at one point in my life um as a contractor not as a enlisted person um and uh, they call it fault isolate, and that was, you know, where you had to determine a problem. But without, you know, uh, that type of information, or at least a recommendation for companies to go to to look for this type of home testing equipment without having to send off. Now, for the amount of money of some of these test kits, you could easily send off to get a full panel done by for an agricultural or mining water test um, that'll give you all of the answers. But at the same time, you can get between 25 and 150 tests for each of these things ranging for between 20 and $50, depending on how much, how accurate and what range you're looking to test some of these nutrients on average. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Another thing that I had a lot of trouble finding information online and that sort of stuff is, is the different nutrient profiles that you need for different, different plants. Because for example, growing lettuce and growing tomatoes, you need different amounts of potassium and all those sort of fun things inside of it. And oh, I just absolutely. couldn't find any information that was specific towards aquaponics because one of the things I was paranoid about is if I'm going to add all this potassium to the water is that going to affect the fish at all because I know there are some grow centers uh, there are some hydroponic nutrients and everything but they've got a lot of copper they've got a lot of zinc and that sort of stuff inside of them which would be horrible for the fish so I wasn't quite sure if potassium, adding more potassium and stuff like that would be an issue for it and that's one of the things that I was paranoid about putting the information online before I completed the first season because I wasn't sure what was going to do what to the water the fish and that sort of stuff. So yes, so, I experiment and tinker with that. Well, I actually have a, an incredible amount of data on that. Is there any particular question that you have on that? So just for the um, those of you who don't know, like I have data from many, 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 many. Back when I used to work for the aquaponics source, I had the ability to email a whole bunch of different universities, commercial growers, and a bunch of other things, and I collected a ton of data. And when I left there, that was one of the things that I I got as you know, part of me leaving there um, was all the data that I worked on. And I used that to compile a whole bunch of averages based on people's actual real world production. I, I have an enormous amount of data from a very wide range for everything from commercial grows to universities to experimental grows that did really well and everything in between. Um, so if you have a particular nutrient question or if you just want to know what lettuce should be at or flowering plants should be at or whatever, um, it's definitely something that I can answer for, answer for you. Yeah, send it to me. Because yeah, one of the things I could find was um, just basic different plants. So what are strawberries? Are the strawberries the same as tomatoes? Can you grow capsicums that are the same or peppers that are the same as tomatoes? Because just different nutrient profiles to get the optimum amount of growth inside okay. of each of them. And I couldn't find that information for the life of me. I could find it for hydroponics, but I wasn't sure if they correlate back and forth between each other because 
Well, I say controlling nitrates, so I can manage pretty well by growing different things in the system. So grow something like mint, which sucks out more nitrates than and everything which will suck out more nitrates in the system. But I couldn't find any detailed information that would, like for the different crops. So yeah, if you've got anything like that, send it to me. Yeah, the, uh, tell us all here. So on that exact note, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I've actually been in the process of working on scripts uh, to make sure I get all the data that I want together for each nutrient. I'm going to be releasing a nitrogen, a phosphorus, a potassium, a sulfur, a calcium, a magnesium, an iron, a silica, a chloride, a magne uh, manganese, a copper, a zinc, a boron, a molybdenum, a dissolved oxygen, a sodium, uh, and then uh, even a few trace elements like cobalt and a few others, um, and base you know doing individual videos on those, and then ranges for vegetable production and fruiting crop production. Um, the cannabis stuff uh, I'm probably gonna um, hold on to at least for the time being, but I'm gonna be doing the the vegetable and the fruit production for for general aquaponic growers. Uh, here on my YouTube page uh, here before before too long. I actually have been working the last couple of weeks on uh, on some scripts for that and to make sure that um, we uh, have some pretty awesome content for that and you know yeah, making sure that I uh, have everything that I could possibly want to recommend and, and this and that. Um. No, sounds good. Yeah, because that sort of information is really hard to find and I say I don't have the access to the universities and stuff you could get to. So yeah, very interesting. To see. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to trade information with you and um, mm. and add yours into the averages and stuff like that that I already have. Because yeah, I'm just making it up. I'm not making educated guesses from what I can find online, but making it up as I go and hoping that it works well. So like I found compared to last season, adding potassium to the system has just made a massive amount of difference to the leafy uh, to the oh, yeah. growth and the production and those sort of things. But on the downside, lettuce has been growing like. Haven't been able to grow much at all, so yeah, it's just a matter of what you want to grow. Absolutely, and again, I'm so glad you brought up you you brought up two really amazing points that I didn't even think of before the show. But one, the the testing kit companies that I was, you know, I I'm so happy that you brought that up so I could re recommend it to people. And second of all, the fact that mm -hmm. like if you're gonna grow fruiting crops. Grow just fruiting crops in an aquaponic system, and if you're going to grow lettuce greens, grow just lettuce greens in that aquaponic system. If you even have the option of growing two or more systems, that makes so much more sense because you can dial them in so much better. Even even in ranges that are totally fish tolerant, you can supplement the nutrients in a way that you know makes one grow much better than the other. Yeah, if I had a bigger property than what I've got here, the ideal system that I'd probably set up myself would be a dual system. So I wouldn't do it so much the aquaculture side. So I'd keep one side that would be for mostly leafy greens. And then I would have another system that the solids and everything drain into, go through a mineralization tank and those sort of stuff. And on that side, I'd devote it a lot more to the um, fruiting sort of plants. So I'd have tomatoes, I'd have cucumbers and everything growing off that side. So I'd have two different loops and hopefully try and grow things quite well. So I'd keep high nitrates on the um, leafy green side of things and then have it more dialed in towards specific nutrients on the tomatoes and other leafy things. So ideal world when I have a bigger property in 10 years when we can move out to the, a bigger area, then that's ideally what I want to grow and what I build up to. But yeah, so ideal world, that's what I want. That's awesome. 
Yeah. Hmm. Um, so uh, I guess here's the question because you mentioned earlier you use, use iron for supplementation. What chelate do you use or prefer for your systems? Uh, I mean, the exact thought. Like I say, I've tried a couple of them. The first one I got was the one that I've seen Nate Story's stuff on which ones are bad and which ones are good. And I started off with the one that he said was very poisonous. And I was using that one for about two years perfectly without any issues at all. I didn't have any pH lockout. I didn't have any worries about that. And it just worked really, really well. But I say, I've heard that there are some issues with it, but I never found them. At the moment, I'm using the one that sends your water very red. I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head which one it is. I think it's EDDHA. Yeah, yeah, it sends the water quite red and you can tell how much iron there is just by looking at it, which is quite handy. So you wait for it to start getting a little bit less red and you add a little bit more and it's a lot easier that way I found. But and it works quite well that one, like you don't need to put as much in it. I found the one that I needed to the one that he said was very, very bad, E D T something or other. But the one that he said was very bad, I needed to add a lot more to the system to be able to get out of it. The one that works really well, you put far less into it and it sends your water red, you keep an eye on it, and it works quite well that way. Yeah, the, the one that I've been, or that we use the most, I guess, in the States is DTPA, which doesn't stay in mm -hmm. your water near as bad, so it, it doesn't cause as many total issues. The biggest problem with EDDHA is when you go to get a mass spectrometer, mass spectrometer test. Sorry, uh, it's been a good day. Um, the uh, you don't end up with uh, some false readings. The issue that EDDHA causes is that when you do multi-spectrometer tests, such as in a commercial setting with cannabis or other high-dollar crops, it screws up the the spectrometer testing or the GC testing, depending on what you're doing. Both of them, it'll give false readings for when you run it through those. So. It makes it harder to determine because it tints the water and it makes the water not go through mm -hmm. at the right refraction rate and that's what gives false readings back to the system. Yeah, I found one of the problems in Australia was actually sourcing the iron chelate itself. Because there are, I went into one of the hydroponic stores and I said, do you guys have any iron chelates? And they just gave me a very blank look because they've got nutrient profiles that have got it all built into it, like the um, yep. premixed nutrients that you can add to it. But exactly. I wasn't going to add any of that sort of stuff to my system because you look at some of the lists on it, it's got copper, which is in a way too high level for the fish yep. and that sort of stuff. So um, just finding it and sourcing it. You can buy it from the States, you can buy it from Amazon and that sort of stuff, but a lot of them surprisingly don't ship to Australia, which is really weird. You go on there and say, oh, that one, and then it doesn't ship to Australia, which happens to a hell of a lot of stuff. So finding it online is quite tricky to deliver to Australia. So I ended up finding the same one at a normal hardware store. So the one that was supposedly poisonous is on a shelf at the hardware store. And I ended up finding the, I can't remember, the red one through a guy on Facebook and he emailed me. He bought it in way, way bulk. So I think he bought about, and he sent me out half a kilo, which will last me forever. So, was it True Aquaponics or do you remember who it was? Was it True Aquaponics? No. I finding it, which was really through Amazon or through? Okay. I can't remember for the last minute. Yeah, um, through Amazon was where I was trying to find it, and I just couldn't. So it was, and you Google it, you try and find it in Australia, and it's just a nightmare. There's if anyone's looking for any deficiency, if anyone's looking for aquaponics specific deficiency guides or nutrients, um, definitely check out True Aquaponics. Um, he has a whole big long set of posts on different nutrient deficiencies and a wide range based on your current pH of. Um, iron deficiencies that you can uh, you can dose for and uh, different products available so definitely give them a shout out 
if we're in the US. Well, the thing that I recommend for a lot of people with just normal nutrient deficiency is a seaweed extract or a seaweed power feed extract because they've usually got most of the micronutrients that you're missing. So you can just add that straight into it and it will sort out any. Because I found that that's one of the easiest ways to do it. So a seaweed extract usually has all the things that you need. I say it's not as narrowed down. So if you're trying to grow tomatoes or something, then you will need something a little bit more accurate. But just for general nutrient deficiencies, that sort of stuff has everything in it. And it takes away a lot of the guesswork for people that are confused. Because you look at a picture of a leaf online and then you can try to compare it to what your one is, it can just get lost. And I find the seaweed extract yep. just works really, really well for the most of them. I'm working on a solution for that that I can't tell you more about right now, but before too long, there'll be a nice little uh, aquaponics guide out on the internet. That's uh, very easy to use and interactable. Um, thank you, aquaponic <laughs> dummy, uh, for uh, for the comment here. You just left some cool comments in the in the chat here. It says it's F E D D H A that causes the the red staining and um, also. Uh, causes the colorometer issues with uh, refractometers and colorometers. And, and so uh, for those of you who don't know, like uh, a color test such as uh, HANA testers um, use a colorometer, which basically runs light, uh, a set amount of light through this little mirror, uh, checks how, what color the, the water looks like, and then compares that to its own internal color chart. And when you dye it with these, um, uh, uh, different um, F E D D D H A. Yeah, when you dye it with these it's different the irons, it screws up the ability for that light to to reflect through that water, and then it gives you false readings, and that's why you can end up with false readings for your HANA or other color meters when you use E D D H A or uh, E D E D T A uh, and not D uh, D T P A. Uh, with D T P A, you'll get percent accurate but they'll be extremely close um, with the other iron chelates it becomes extremely hard to regularly test for and that's one of the biggest reasons why um, you're uh, you know you need to um, uh, steer away from those well, fair enough about any good questions that I've been thinking about. Some um, of you might know, I've had no luck at all with basil for this year. I'm not quite sure. Is the high potassium bad for basil? Do you know? Uh, what was that? I'm sorry? Basil. Do you know if that? Because I've had no luck at all with basil this year. I'm trying to go around. I'm not sure. I think I'm pretty sure high potassium levels are growing potassium up Potassium between 60 and 80 for basil in an aquaponic system. Parts per million. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm definitely out there. Or milligrams per liter, whatever your uh, your uh, measurement is. Yeah. I've had no luck at all this year. It's been quite sad. The basil really does best when you have extremely high nitrogen, so like 30, 30 to 60 nitrogen or even higher, basil does super kick-ass. Um, above about 60 parts per million, it starts to stretch a lot. And you'll end up with very large node spacing to where it's not it's spacing out almost too much. So, can you hear me? You still there? Yeah. Yeah. I'm here. Sorry about yeah. that. Uh, this it's up a little bit, but not too bad. 
Yeah, the storm is raging outside. I apologize for the hiccup there. Go ahead. Yes, um, what was I going to say? Yeah, one of the things I have trouble with mine is keeping the nitrates up because I find that the tomatoes are just sucking straight out of it. I've had pretty much zero nitrates for a while now. I keep on adding more fish. I added 60 extra fish from the breeding experiment that I did last year or this year, and I still can't keep the nitrates up high enough for them. I find once the tomatoes get out of it, then they start coming up again. But yeah, I need more fish, I think, or a feed more often or something. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up? If not, uh, I think we're going to start to wind down the show here. Um, is there anything other yeah, things that I think were particularly uh, unique to Australia or anything that you wanted uh, to mention you felt like maybe was underemphasized in the aquaponics industry or in especially in Australian aquaponics versus the United States or um, you know, maybe a particularly important view that you on, They look very they look quite similar in what we can grow and that's just have to tomatoes are tomatoes and I just grow what I'd like to have. Um, there aren't any major Australian foods that we try and grow here. There's lemon myrtle and things like that, which wouldn't have too much over there and some different spices and that sort of stuff. But most of the time we grow very similar. I think it's just a climate which changes a little bit. And the growing times and that sort of stuff throughout the year. And yeah, it's quite simple. It's quite easy. I think the backyard aquaponic system is a lot bigger in Australia than it is in the States. Look, just looking on the forums and looking at the amount of Australians compared to the um, from pretty much every other country, the Australians generally um, dominate the backyard scene, which I'm quite happy about. Um, and you can find people a lot easier, but I think you guys have a lot more farms over there. So we have some biggish farms over here, but I think you guys are leading the way in the farm side of things. But I think backyard side of things, Australia is doing very, very well, especially with the amount of people we have here in comparison to the States. Have a similar landmass, but nowhere near as many people here as the states. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, we we kind of consider ourselves similar sized countries, but we often forget that. So, yeah, so way more of you guys than there are. <laughs> Alrighty, well, um, yeah, nobody in the anybody have any questions in the comments? Um, Not sure how many different uh, people there are from us. Yeah, we've had about a uh, twenty twenty five different. 25 to 30 different uh, people watch the show over the course of the thing. I'm trying to see if there's any um, questions in particular on the chat here. Uh, the controls. I don't think we had anything in particular that, as far as questions. Does anybody have any questions before we uh, wind the show up? And uh, it happens to be in chat. Looks like we have about 12 viewers right now at the moment. Yeah. As far as live. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. Well, um, is there any, uh, how can people find you if they want to look more into your, uh, you know, your YouTube and everything? Where can they find you at? Yep. So there is a link in the bottom of the description here, which goes to my YouTube channel. And if you search goldfish, then there's a good chance on YouTube that I'll pop up on their lines. But yeah. Links below, I've got Facebook pages and Twitters and that sort of stuff. I don't use it as much, but um, YouTube's the general way I go through and all that sort of information. So yeah, it's down in the description, check me out and say hey. Well, I extremely appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. I know that uh, 
you know, it wasn't the easiest thing for you to hop on in the middle of the day out there. I think we started at about 1230 in the afternoon, your time. So I really appreciate you taking the time during the, uh, you know, during your weekend to, to join us. And um, no, I'm happy to come. I'm happy to have you on the uh, on the show anytime in the future that you're interested in hopping on. And, uh, you know, feel free to reach out if you ever have a question. And thanks so much again. Yeah, for the show. No, like the best thing I got out of this one was uh, silica, how it silica to it. Because I think that's probably one of my main problems that I had with um, growing cucumbers and lettuce and pumpkins and that sort of stuff. So I'll make sure that I'll try it next season. It's a good tip. It helps tomatoes too, so especially with the uh, tomato blight. Like you get, you know, and the tomatoes get real old, the lower half of the plant starts to go. Uh, if you start to do silica, yeah. it kind of helps slow down, not totally prevent it, but it dramatically slows mm. that progression. And you'll end up getting more production of the no, more part good. of your plant as well. I'll be giving some Googling soon. <laughs> uh, thanks for everyone for joining us. Um, if you guys are interested in taking any uh, aquaponic herb classes, um, I have the aquaponic medicinal herb class coming up in Ouroboros next weekend. Um, if you're interested in taking the aquaponic cannabis class, it is, hold on, let me double check the dates on here, the 25th and 26th of March. Uh, based in Ouroboros, uh, which is in Half Moon Bay, California, uh, is located near San Francisco. Um, both of those classes are located in the same place. Um, next weekend, is it, let me double check. Yep, next weekend, the 25th and 26th of February is the medicinal herb class. And the 25th and 26th of March is the next cannabis class. If anyone's interested, uh, definitely go check out OuroborosFarms.com and uh and sign up there and um if you guys want to reach me check out potentponics at gmail.com uh, marty was not able to visit us uh please go check out marty at apmeds.com um uh, be sure to check out uh, uh columns uh, youtube channel he was kind enough to join us be sure to check out fish ganja guys uh youtube channel as well i have a, a link to him in the description as well um and uh thanks for joining us um also check out aquaponic cannabis growers on facebook as a facebook group if you're interested in learning more about high nutrient even if you're not interested in growing cannabis um we you know a lot of people there grow fruit trees and medicinal herbs and other uh high yield hard to grow crops that aren't necessarily cannabis but happen to have similar nutrient profiles and we do a lot of great discussion with a lot of very intelligent people that are all involved in the industry and uh we have a lot of great people in that group so definitely check it out um i also wanted to uh um say thanks again to to true aquaponics for listening you know allowing me to work with him on the on the consulting stuff on his through his website and uh if you guys need any nutrient powder nutrients definitely check out his website I'm going to be helping him expand some of his uh, options here in the near future. And um, thanks again for joining us. Um, is there anything no, else no you wanted to mention here at the end? I very much appreciate your time and the fact that you took, you know, time out of the middle of the year day to join us. No, so we're happy to come along. I've got nothing much else to plug. There's only the YouTube page. So check it out if you're interested. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. I've been involved with stuff I didn't know. So. <laughs> I appreciate it very much, and, and uh, I look forward to seeing all of you guys uh, again next episode, and have a great day.